right, today we're going to continue a sermon series called Light in the Darkness. It is a series that we've been talking about angels and demons, uh, the struggle between good and evil. We've been, talking about, uh, uh, we've been talking about the unseen war going on in your life and in your world, in our world. And it's a war that was going on at Christmas. Christmas is not something sentimental. The birth of Jesus was not something sweet. It was uh, an attack an assault of light against the darkness that wants to take over this world. And just like God wants what's best for you, there is an enemy who wants what's worst for you. And even though Jesus, we believe at his resurrection, won the war and the, war, and the outcome of the war has been decided, we live in the aftermath. And so Jesus has won, but people can still be lost. So there's still something at stake with the way you choose to live your life and the, the God you choose to worship. Because let's face it, we all worship some God, whether or not you're a believer or a Christian or whatever, everyone bows to something. And so uh, what you bow to has uh, so much to say about um, the, the trajectory of your life and we believe uh, the well-being of your soul um, in eternity. So uh, we are talking about this uh, ongoing struggle. Today we're going to do that by looking at one of my favorite characters from the gospel accounts of Christmas. And his name is Joseph a character that we all know of, but I'm afraid we don't really know. So we're going to be looking at uh, Joseph today. The first part of today's sermon is going to feel a little bit like a lecture in a classroom, um, and then uh, I'm just trying to lay the foundation for what I really want us to take home today about Joseph. So if you have your Bible, you can take it out and go ahead and get ready and turn to Matthew chapter 1, um, and we're going to read from that in a, in a little while. And if you don't have a Bible, it's on your study guide, so get those sermon study guides out, and those can be useful to you as well uh, during today's sermon. And uh, if you don't have a Bible but you want one, uh, grab one on your way out today at the hospitality station. We would love to, to gift you um, with that. So, all right, uh, let's dig in and talk about Joseph, because I think understanding Joseph is so critical to understanding Jesus. All right, so Joseph is... A hero, no doubt, but an unsung hero. We think that Joseph was kind of a pawn in God's Christmas plans. What I want us to see is that Joseph could have said no. Joseph had options, just like you have an option, just like you've said no to God's clear directive at times, just like I've said no to God's clear directive. Joseph had the same choice to say no. What I want us to see today is that Joseph is more than just words on a page. He's more than just this mythical character in ancient times. He's a real guy. He was a real person, a young man of flesh and blood who had a real decision to make about a crisis that emerged in his life. And so we don't know a ton about Joseph, but we know enough. And there's some parts of Joseph's life that we can deduce based on what we know about the culture that Joseph lived in. So this will be an especially important message for the men here today. Next week, we'll talk about Mary's journey. Today, we're going to focus on Joseph. Um, and so here we go. We're going to learn about Joseph. Here's what we know about Joseph from the Bible. We know that Joseph was from Bethlehem. And the map that you see is kind of a map of the region. I kind of wanted to get your bearings. Uh, this is a modern-day map, and uh, this is the Holy Land area here. If we could zoom in on that with the next map, Michael. I think we have another one. Here we go. This is the Holy Land uh, map. It zoomed in. So this is Bethlehem here. Bethlehem is kind of a suburb to the south of Jerusalem, but it wasn't like a, a swanky like a suburb uh, you might think of. It was a very impoverished 
poor town. It was a small town. It still is kind of a small town outside of Jerusalem. If you go to Bethlehem now, there's a huge wall put up around uh, the city of Bethlehem to keep uh, uh, bad guys out of Jerusalem and to kind of keep control over the political situation. There's a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety in the town of Bethlehem right now because you might feel the same way if some uh, other group of people built a wall uh, through your city and told you where you can go and where you can't go. And that's kind of what's going on in Bethlehem now. And it's kind of always been a stepchild to Jerusalem. Um, for as long as we can remember, Bethlehem has always kind of played that, that role in relationship to the big city of Jerusalem. This is where Joseph grows up. Many people think Joseph is from Nazareth because it's Jesus of Nazareth. And so we think maybe Joseph was from Nazareth as well. Mary was from Nazareth. And that's what the Gospel of Luke tells us. But Joseph was not from up here at Nazareth. Joseph was from down here at Bethlehem. The question is, how did these two people meet? Joseph and his family all in Bethlehem. Mary's people all in Nazareth. We'll get to that in a second. What I want you to see is that these two places are about the same distance apart, and this is the path that Joseph, Mary, Joseph and Mary took to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They couldn't have taken a straight shot. There's mountains here, so they would have gone around like this. And that path is the same distance as if you were to walk on foot from the Bush Intercontinental Airport to, uh, to the Galveston Beach. That's about how long uh, that that took on foot, which is just a shade shorter than it takes to drive that uh, in Houston traffic. So uh, the, 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 the distance here matters, and I think it tells us something about um, Joseph's life. We know that Joseph was from Nazareth. We also know that Joseph was a tecton. A tecton was translated in the King James Bible as carpenter. Joseph may have been a carpenter, but it's more likely that he, he was a, a, a craftsman. He probably worked with wood, but he might not have only worked with wood. Tecton means builder, uh, literally. Joseph was a builder, construction worker. Uh, he was not a designer. He was not a master builder. That word would have been something like architecton, which is where our word architect comes from. Joseph was just a tecton, which means he was a day laborer, a blue-collar guy, he, uh, you know, uh, made a living, but just barely, and he needed a lot of volume of work to make his own way. So Joseph would have been looking for a place to settle down where he could have made his own way by, by building uh, in large volumes, especially if he worked with wood. That would have been especially important because not much was made of wood in first century Judea. There's not a lot of wood going, uh, going around in, in first century Judea. If you go to uh, the Holy Land, even now, the only trees you'll see really are olive trees. You don't build anything with olive trees. The only things that we really know of that were built with wood in the first century in this region would have been things like doors and tables and boats. All things, ironically, we find on nearly every page of the Gospels, every page of the stories of Jesus's life include these things. And Jesus talks about them often which would make sense, I guess, if you piece together the real life of Joseph and, uh, and Jesus. So we know Joseph was a tecton. We know that Joseph was engaged to Mary. Matthew and Luke tell us this. Those are the only two Gospels that really tell the Christmas story. The Gospel of John doesn't really tell the Christmas story as much. It's more like a poem about Christmas, um, and Mark doesn't deal with the Christmas story at all. But Matthew and Luke tell us about, uh, Matthew tells us about Joseph. Luke tells us about Mary. 
So the, the question is, a couple of questions come to mind. How old are these two people that are engaged to each other so that we can get a mental image of who it is we're talking about and how did they meet? Let's first of all deal with the age question. The Bible doesn't give us a number for how old they are, but the Bible's pretty clear that Mary was a virgin. And to be a virgin in first century Jewish uh, times meant that a young girl's body had developed and was ready to have children, to produce offspring. And so that's what it meant to be a virgin was to, to have a body that's ready to bear children, but to not have been with a man yet. And so we know from modern science, and it wasn't that much different then, that that happens somewhere between 12 and 14 years old, usually. And so we can imagine that Mary, who has just recently gone on the market for marriage, she has just recently been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, probably was between 12 and 14 years old which is a very different image than the Mary we often picture and the Mary of the movies and things like that they've made about Jesus' life, where it's kind of this put-together, almost middle-aged woman. Like, she's got, like, her education, and, like, she's had a career, and she's, like, on her way, you know? And that's not what we're dealing with in the real story. She's 12 to 14 years old. This is who God entrusts the hope of the world to. So Mary's age is pretty easy to clear up. Joseph's age is a little more complicated and Joseph's age has been one that has uh, been debated by Christians hotly for centuries. And we have disagreed uh, between Catholics and Protestants about how old Joseph was. You may have seen in nativity scenes or in some Christmas uh, uh, types of portraits, you see uh, Joseph that looks really, really old. Some of you might have seen nativity scenes where Joseph has gray hair and he looks like a, a grandfather more than just a father, and this is Joseph in your typical Roman Catholic, um, you know, piece of art or nativity scene. And where that comes from, the idea that Joseph was much older than Mary comes from a later tradition that's not biblical, but was kind of a way of filling in a, a problematic gap in the Christmas story for the early Catholic theologians and church fathers they uh, had a problem because what they wanted to believe about Mary was that Mary was not just a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Mary remained a virgin, sexually pure, throughout the rest of her life. And so she was a perpetual virgin. That's how most Catholics remember Mary. The only problem with that is that the gospel accounts uh, refer several times to Jesus' brothers. He had at least four brothers and several sisters. And so the early... Uh, Catholic fathers who believed that the act of sex itself was somehow sinful or dirty and just participating in that act made you a sinner. They didn't want to think Mary was a sinner. And so how do we reconcile this? And so this is the story they created. Joseph was a widower. He was a much older man who had already lived his life and raised children with another woman. And uh, he took Mary in, not with any desire to procreate with her or, uh, you know, have a romantic relationship with her. He took Mary in kind of like a grandfather would take care of a granddaughter. And so he never touched her. They never had those kinds of relations. And uh, the other brothers and sisters were from his past marriage. Not biblical kind of a story, but it was a convenient way to explain, you know, uh, Jesus's siblings without admitting that Mary and Joseph ever, because no one really wants to think about your parents ever, you know, like, right? You're all immaculately conceived, if you think about it, like, you don't want to, you want to deal with it, and that's kind of what they were dealing with. Mary was the mother of the church, and so they made up a story, and that's fine, but 
Protestants tend to disagree. Now, we agree that Joseph was very likely older than Mary. We just disagree with how much older he was. So we think uh, Joseph was um, probably more like this age uh, um, because of what we know about the culture then. And so Joseph must have proven himself ready for marriage. And for men in first century Jewish culture, it wasn't about your body being ready to, to make children. For men, it was about you proving that you can make a living, you proving that you can support a family. And so uh, that, that's when you knew a man was ready to, uh, to, to take a wife. And so I, I think that is why Joseph moves from Bethlehem to Nazareth, um, because while there wouldn't have been a lot of uh, new construction going on in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem in first century, the, the area around Nazareth was booming in the first century. There was a town called Sepphoris, a city called Sepphoris, that the Romans were building for their elite class. It was like a boardwalk city, and there were new constructions happening everywhere, new buildings coming up all over the place. I think Joseph left his father's home in Bethlehem, moved to Nazareth because that's where the work was, and, uh, and, and proved while he was in Nazareth, he proved that he could make a living to support a family. And so Joseph goes to the synagogue and tells the rabbi, Rabbis that he's ready. He proves that he's ready. And the rabbis at the synagogue set Joseph and Mary up. I think that's how it happened. If I were to guess, I would say that Joseph during this time was 16 to 18 years old when he is engaged to Mary. So you don't have to romanticize it. It wasn't like, you know, Joseph saw Mary at the grocery store and they locked eyes and like, you don't have to like, they didn't meet online, you know, and all that stuff. They probably were just set up because Mary was of age to get married and Joseph was making a living. And they were both from respectable Jewish families and it was time for them to get married. And so uh, we, we know that, uh, that Joseph and Mary were, were engaged. Um, so we also know that engagement didn't work the same way then as it does now. Uh, the man didn't get on one knee and say, will you marry me? And then they, you know, they did like cake tastings and they did, they sent their invitations and they fought about the tuxes and, you know, Mary and Joseph didn't do any of that. This is how engagement worked in the first century. They would take their marriage vows up front. So Mary and Joseph, by the time this stuff is written in, uh, in the Gospels, Mary and Joseph are already married in the eyes of God. That's why, it, they, in, on the one hand, as you're going to hear in Matthew 1, it says that they were engaged, and in a few verses later, it says Joseph was, his, was her husband, because they were already technically married, but there was this one-year period called your betrothal where you were married, but you weren't living together yet. You were married, but you weren't sleeping together yet, and then after that one year, you would, uh, you would come together and make it official as husband and wife. That's how it works. We know this. That's what happens with Joseph and Mary. And then this is what comes next. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You can follow along your Bibles or on uh, the screens or in your study guides as well. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, uh, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no premarital, no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. So I want you to see uh, this passage with realistic eyes. Don't see it with your Christmassy sentimental eyes. See it for what it is. Because there was a scandal in Nazareth, and it was real. It was a real scandal. Because Joseph is engaged to Mary, Mary's pregnant, and it's not Joseph's baby. They had not been together. So Joseph is naturally thinking that Mary has gone and slept with another man. Joseph had no reason to believe anything other than Mary has been unfaithful to their marriage vows before Joseph even had a chance to be with Mary. And so some of you have been cheated on before. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. That gets awkward. But some of you have been cheated on before, and you know the kind of pain and shame that someone like Joseph is going through right now. He is dealing with so many different emotions. He wants to know how, how could Mary do this? He wants to know, who is he? Joseph wants to know, what are my parents going to say? Because no doubt Joseph has taken her to Bethlehem and introduced her to his parents. And they're so proud of their young man for proving he can support a family and finding a good Jewish girl. And now all of that is thrown away. And so Joseph, who had his whole life in front of him, Joseph, who was on the fast track in doing the best that he possibly could, now his life is turned completely upside down because of the seemingly selfish decisions of this woman that he's engaged to. And Joseph has options. Joseph has remedies at his disposal for this situation. We take for granted that Joseph was faithful to Mary and to the child inside of her. He didn't have to be. And you say, I hear people say, well, the angel came and told him exactly what to do. Like, how could he say no to that? And I would just remind you that we have all said no to God plenty of times. God has made it abundantly clear to us what it is we should be doing, things like love your enemies, and we've said thanks but no thanks. We got this, Jesus. You know, we do it all the time. And just like we could say no to God, and we have, Joseph also could say no. He's got things that he could have done other than what he did. He, he could have exposed Mary. This would have been, biblically then, the righteous thing to do. By exposing Mary, Joseph could have been the object of everyone's sympathy in town. Every mother would have been trying to give Joseph her daughter because he had been jilted. And poor Joseph, he's such a good man. How could she have done this to him? Y'all know the drill. Joseph could have taken the spotlight on himself by exposing Mary. He could have had her punished by the religious leaders. The letter of the law called at that time for a woman in Mary's position to be not just shamed, but stoned to death. So Joseph could have assaged his feelings. He could have fed his appetite for revenge, because I have no doubt Joseph had some of that going on, man. Joseph's a guy, a person. We all feel jealousy at times like that. 
I have no doubt that Joseph didn't have a halo on his head back then. We put that on him later. Joseph was a regular guy. And his girl went apparently with someone else. Now he has a chance to punish her, shame her. And if we can find the guy, he can be stoned too. You don't think Joseph wanted that? Of course he did. Joseph could have done that. And no one would have given it a second thought. He would have been a hero, basically, for pursuing that kind of justice in the face of Mary's supposed sin. Joseph could have... <laughs> I got an uh-oh from the back. Joseph... <laughs> Joseph could have, uh, could have taken Mary as his wife, and then every day for the rest of their lives, Joseph could have held what she did over her head. He could have reminded her of what she did to him every single time they were in a fight about something else. She would never win a fight because Joseph would bring that back up and just hold it over her head. Joseph could have been okay to, to marry and then treated the child like a second-class citizen or a second-class member of the family. Joseph could have treated that child differently from all the other children that came later. Joseph could have resented that child because when he looked at him, he didn't see his own characteristics. He didn't see himself. He saw somebody else. Could have done all those things. Those are real choices for a man like Joseph in his position. But we know Joseph was faithful. I want you to see he didn't have to be. Joseph had choices, and there's a reason why God chose a man like Joseph to play this part, and there's a reason why Joseph said yes to it. So, not only did Joseph say yes to taking Mary as his wife and taking Mary's child as his own, he didn't do it halfway. Joseph wasn't just a halfway husband, a halfway father. Joseph adopts the child when he's born. We know this because culturally we know that in the first century Judea, whenever you were the one to name a child, you placed your claim on that child. The one who names the child claims the child. And so Matthew wants it very clear, wants it to be made known that when Jesus was born, Joseph held him in his arms and said, his name is Jesus because he's my child. It's pretty big of Joseph. This is my son. And there is nothing that will ever hurt him if I can help it. And Joseph spends the next few years protecting Jesus and Mary, caring for them, providing for them, putting all of his own hopes and dreams on hold. Joseph's life was going somewhere, and he puts all of that on hold, and they end up in Egypt for a while as refugees, and they come back, and Herod's trying to kill their baby, and he gives it all away for the sake of this child that wasn't even his, technically his adopted son. So this story this week got me thinking about the people I know who are stepfathers, stepparents, or adoptive parents. People that choose to love a child who is not technically, biologically theirs to love. You see, I, am, I feel grateful that my two biological parents raised me, but they never chose to raise me. They never chose to love me. They kind of had to love me because I was their flesh and blood. People would have looked down on them had they not loved me. I'm raising my two biological children, and I never chose to love these two. Sometimes I see y'all's kids. I'd rather have yours, frankly, but I've got mine. 
because God put them in my lap, literally, and said, you got to love these two. And I joke with them sometimes. I tell my children, I'm like, I still got the paperwork. I wonder what the return policy is at the hospital. You know, it's, daddy, you can't return a kid. And I'm thinking in my head, is it possible? Like, you know, no, but the, you know, on the worst days. But like, I think about it, but these are my biological children. And it's really hard to like them sometimes, if I'm honest. Y'all stop judging me. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> People that don't have children are like, what's wrong with him? Y'all just wait. Y'all just wait. <laughs> so... What it got me thinking about are the people that go above and beyond just biological attachment and biological love and the social expectation to love a child that is your own and they choose to love a child and choose to sacrifice for a child and give up their own dreams for another child's dreams even if that child looks different than them and, and technically belongs to somebody else. They claim a child as their own. Step parents that do it right. I know not all step parents do it right, but step parents, stepfathers, stepmothers, adoptive parents, foster parents that get it right. Man, I don't know of any greater heroes in the world than those who claim something, someone who's not technically theirs, and say, This one is mine, and nothing's gonna happen to him or her on my watch. And I'm gonna set my own priorities aside, my own dreams aside for the dreams God wants to dream through this child. That's heroic when it's done. When it's done right, that is otherworldly. I uh, came across this uh, video uh, this week that I, I, I want y'all to, to see. Before we, before we do that, I'm just curious in the room right now, how many of you either had, have, or are a stepfather, stepmother, uh, uh, adoptive parent, or even a foster parent? How many of you had, have, or are one of those things? All right, so significant numbers of hands going up in the room. I would say probably a, a, a sixth or an eighth of the room right now has your hands in the air. And uh, when it is done right, it is heroic. What I want us to see is that Joseph was Jesus's stepdad. We don't often say it. We say something like he was his earthly father or whatever. Joseph was a stepdad to Jesus. Joseph chooses to raise Jesus, and he adopts him, and he raises him. And my question to you, before we watch the video, my question is, where do you think Jesus learned to be a man? Where do you think Jesus learned to take care of other people before himself? Who do you think he saw doing that his whole life? It was Joseph. And I know we think that Jesus came pre-wired to know all things because he was God in the flesh, but the gospels say that Jesus grew in his wisdom. Who do you think grew him up? Who poured into him? Who showed him an example of how to treat people and how to, uh, to work every day for your daily bread? Who, who taught him what it means to be a good father? Why do you think Jesus tells so many stories about loving fathers? Does that sound like the words of a man who had a distant step-parent? No. He learned it from somewhere. He learned it from Joseph. And we don't know when Joseph died, but I, I think it's pretty clear that Joseph was alive when Jesus' ministry began at 30. And I think he died before Jesus died on the cross. Somewhere in that three-year span, Joseph dies. And Jesus, in his final moments, before he takes his last breath, 
He wants to make sure his mama's taken care of. One of his final requests is for his best friend to look after his mom. Where do you think he learned to take care of his mother that way? I think this was the man Joseph raised Jesus to be. Stepdads, man, stepdads are heroes. So here's the video that I came across. I, I hope that uh, you're touched by it as much as I was. Let's give it a look. My stepdad is our first family group date. We all went over to his house. We watched Titanic. My mom fell asleep and he like looked at us and was like, do you wanna go do something fun? He took us to the grocery store and bought tons and tons of silly string and Nerf guns for the four of us. We drove back and my mom was still sleeping on the couch and we just like ambushed her with Nerf guns and like silly string and then we just tore through the whole house. I have a letter. I guess I should say I have a letter from my stepdad. Katie, Katie what, what a, a gift, gift you have been, been to my life. I'll never forget the first time I laid eyes on you. You seem to have a love of life that few little girls have. As your mother and I fell in love, it was easy for me to fall in love with you too. I knew you had been let down and were scared to believe in anyone else. When you asked me if I was for real, I told you I'd prove to you that I was. I hope I've made good on my promise. I never wanted to let you down. I'll never forget the night you asked me to perform with you at the daddy-daughter palm dance. Little did I know it meant a month of rehearsal and that we were going to perform this in front of a packed house at the hottest game of the year. We did great and I still believe it was the best halftime show in that school's history. Katie, you have been and always will be my daughter. When we started this journey together, you were a little girl. Today I see a grown woman who has taken what life has to offer and has charted her own path. Katie, I love you, and I'm so very proud to be your dad. He just stepped up. You know, he just, he knew I needed some, like, I needed, like, a strong, like, father role. And he just, he just did it. But at the same time, like, he just wanted to, like, love and treat me as his own. He loves to, like, be like, you go, um, which is what that letter was. It's always good to hear. It's, like, it's nice to have that. Thank God for stepfathers, stepmothers, adoptive parents who step in and fill the gap and love people who, socially speaking, they don't have to love. There's no obligation there but they choose to love and invest. Thank God for people like that. What a difference they make. That man didn't have to love Katie the way that he did. Joseph didn't have to love Jesus the way that he did. When a stepfather gets it, he realizes he is not the most important person in his world. He chooses to not be the most important person in his world. Joseph was not the most important person to Joseph. And this is so critical for us to see. And this is the key when we look at the story of Joseph because Joseph puts someone else and something else, some other dream before his own dreams, before his own selfish ambitions. This is what makes Joseph heroic. What makes Joseph great is that he never cared about greatness. He just wanted to be a good man, not a great man. Joseph didn't need the spotlight or the pat on the back. Joseph just did the right thing. And he never sought the spotlight. 
because of it. Do you know a Joseph? Do you know someone like that? Thank God in your prayers for that person. Go to them and thank them. They probably won't even accept your thanks. But go and thank them for stepping up and standing in the gap when he could have walked away and lesser people would have walked away and no one would have blamed him for walking away. Christmas is about a man who sees a child that's not his and saying, he, and saying I'm going to protect this one. This one's mine. And I'm not going to count the cost. What I love most about Joseph is that even though he was so heroic, even though he's Saint Joseph now and he wears the halo, you know how many words Joseph says combined in all four Gospels? Zero. Zero. The great Saint Joseph has no lines. He's a main character with no lines in the story of Jesus. And that's what makes him great is that he doesn't need to say the right thing. He just does the right thing because it's the right thing to do over and over again. He just does what is right. Even when, you remember the great story about when uh, Jesus gets lost when he's 12 years old? He gets lost in Jerusalem, and Mary and Joseph don't even realize that he's lost, and they look around for him for three days. Can you imagine the terror of losing Jesus for three days in the big city, and they search for him, and they finally find him, and Joseph is there, and Mary is there, but Joseph doesn't say anything. It's Mary that goes up to Jesus and says, do you know what you put your father and I through? And she just tears into him. Joseph is there, but he doesn't say anything, and once Mary is done, I just imagine Joseph being the kind of stepfather, the kind of father who gets down on one knee in front of his son who's probably upset and says, your mother's going to forgive you. I forgive you. Just don't do it again, okay? And I wonder if Jesus sounded a little bit like Joseph when he stood in front of the woman at the well or the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and those men were about to stone her to death, just like his mother could have been stoned to death. I wonder if Jesus sounded a little bit like Joseph when he said, I don't con condemn you. They don't condemn you. Just don't do it again, okay? Jesus learned it from somewhere, and I think he learned it from the man who had no obligation to teach him anything. But Joseph stepped up, and I, I hope this gives you a picture of who Joseph was and what made him heroic. Now, the reason I wanted to include this story of Joseph in this series about light and darkness is because one of the enemy's greatest weapons against us in this generation, I'm convinced, is selfishness and self-absorption and self-obsession. We are so compelled by culture to put ourselves at the center of our universe and to think that I am the most important person in my life. It's so pervasive, that idea, that no one really gives it a second thought anymore. One of the greatest idols that we are tempted to worship isn't money or success or fame or glory. It's me, because I'm what matters here. And you guys are just extras in the story about my life. And even God is an extra in the movie about me. And, you know, we can get caught up in that. And that is a toxic way to live your life. I mean, the symptoms and signs of this are everywhere. The Oxford University Dictionary declared in 2013 the word of the year to be selfie. 
We have selfie sticks that we take our own pictures with. If we see a picture online and I'm not in it, I'm not even interested in it. You know, like that is the culture that we are living in now. And here's the problem with that, you guys. And this is, I just, I care about you and, and I want to get it right myself. When you live with yourself at the center of your universe, everyone and everything else becomes disposable in the sense that your relationships, if they're not making you feel good anymore, if they're not giving you return on investment, you just go find some new relationships. And your marriage, if it's not meeting your needs or giving you what you want, making you feel good anymore, throw it away and find a new one. Some people do that with churches. If your church isn't giving you what you think you want or need anymore, you can find a new one. Sometimes you can even treat God that way, and God isn't giving you what you need, so you need to find a different God or a different path to God. And, and so you become convinced that if you're at the center of the universe, everyone else is the problem if you're not feeling right about yourself. And eventually you run out of people to dispose of. Eventually you run out of relationships and you realize at the end of that long, lonely day that you have been the problem all along. I've seen people hit that wall and I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for me. But that is the result of worship that turns in on itself. The story is a church that is all about selfless service. It's about sacrifice. We live and thrive on the work of our team members. We thanked them on Friday night at a party. There were like 70-something volunteers at a party, and that was less than half of the people who volunteer to make Sunday mornings work in small groups and coffee house and hospitality and everything that we do. Everything is about teams and service here. What I love about our teams the most is that our volunteers don't need the pat on the back. And one sign of toxicity in your relationship to God and your own spiritual walk is when you serve God or you serve your neighbor in some way and you want the accolades for it. You need that, uh, that, that moment where you shine. Where you know you're getting it right is when you can serve without seeking that pat on the back. That's the spirit of Joseph. I was talking this week with a guy who, uh, who I've known for months now. And I thought we were close. And I thought I knew everything about him. And then uh, we're talking about why he can't come to the party on Friday night. And he says, well, I mentor these two kids, these at-risk youth in Sharpstown over in a bad part of town where kids are always getting into gangs. And this boy's brothers have all gotten into gangs. And I'm going to stand in the gap and be like a father to this kid. And on my watch, he will not become a gang member. And I said, I've known you for months. I had no idea you've been mentoring two kids that are at risk of becoming gang members. He said, I didn't have any need to tell you. That to me is the spirit of Joseph. It stands in stark contrast to the way that I look at it sometimes. I still remember in my third year of ministry when all my other seminary graduates that I compare myself to and want to do better than, um, um, they're all doing these churches out in really nice places and having really nice people come to their churches and they're growing with all kinds of well-adjusted families. And God planted Gio and I in the middle of this homeless community. And right before our very first service was about to start, we were opening the doors to the community. There was a homeless man sitting on a pew and uh, he just kind of leaned over and laid on the pew and I went up to him. This is five minutes before all of our guests were going to be showing up. I go up to him. He's leaning over on the pew and I pick him up and I smell something and I realize that he has 
relieved himself all over the church pew. And I thought, I just graduated seminary. This is not my field to deal with. But I knew I had one thing to do. I had to clean this thing up. I had to clean him up. I had to make him presentable for everyone else that comes so he didn't lose his dignity. And as I'm doing all that, I'm fighting this battle to not feel like, God, why me? When God had placed me there to be a father to this man who had no father to protect him, to preserve his dignity, God placed us there to provide for him a community, a safe spiritual home. Who am I to complain? Sometimes we have to be careful about putting ourselves at the center of God's universe instead of God. And I think that's what a stepdad like Joseph can show us. They can show us that Jesus came to free us from the prison of self-obsession. Young people, hear me. Jesus came to free you from the prison of self-absorption. What we learn in Jesus, who was raised by a selfless man, is that real life and real value in this life is found in giving yourself away and in giving yourself away without counting the cost, without seeking return on investment, without seeing what you can get out of someone just to give for the sake of giving because that's what God has done for you in Jesus and that's what Jesus frees you to do. That's Christmas. How will you break the norm, that cycle, this Christmas and make this Christmas different than just about you and just about your family? How will you be Joseph to someone else? How will you adopt someone who's been otherwise abandoned? How will you protect someone who's not yours to protect? They are all over Houston. The city of Houston cries out for the church to, raise up, to rise up in the spirit of Joseph and say, I will step up. I will protect you. I will provide for you. Who will that person be in your life? Thank God for the Josephs in the world who remind us of what it really means to live in Christ. Thank God for the ways God's calling you to be a Joseph to someone else. Let's pray. God, thank you for your um, grace and mercy that loves us so freely. We don't understand why you love us the way you do, but we are inspired to love others in the same way. God, open our eyes. Help us to be courageous to love the city of Houston the way you love us, to have our eyes and hearts open to those who may not have fathers and mothers, protectors and providers. God, give us the courage to step forward and say, let me serve without counting the cost. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.